You know, I will make the decisions that are required, difficult as they may be, to return our public finances to a sustainable position. Frankly, if people are losing their jobs now, if businesses are going to the wall, and if people are spending less, we can talk about making tax changes right now, but there will be less to tax. There was a YouGov poll where the majority of the public actually said that they would support some kind of um, windfall tax. Chancellor Rishi Sunak has said that Britain faces new tax rises in the wake of the pandemic. But over the summer, Labour's shadow Chancellor Annalise Dodds warned against increasing taxes during an economic crisis. Meanwhile, new research has found that increasing numbers of Tory voters are in favour of higher taxes. I remain absolutely determined to ensure that the tax burden, insofar as we possibly can, uh, is reasonable and uh, that we continue to be a dynamic, competitive open market economy. We're not calling for raises in tax and particularly at the moment when we absolutely need to reopen our economy and get it back up and running. At some point we will have to come back to you know how we tax fairly in order to you know both pay for the things that we're having to pay for now but you know to pay for a better social settlement coming out of the pandemic. So what do Labour and the Conservatives think about tax rises? Should we be changing the tax system during a recession? And if taxes do rise, who should be paying the most? In this episode of the Weekly Economics podcast, we're asking, should we shake up taxes to recover from the pandemic? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. So this week, I'm very happy to be joined down the line by Robert Palmer, Executive Director of Tax Justice UK. Hi, Robert. Hi. Thanks for being with us. Lovely to have you. And I'm also excited to be joined by Anoush Shekelian, Britain Editor at The New Statesman. Hi, Anoush. Hi. Okay, fab. So let's dive in. We're going to start with you, Robert. As I said, you work for Tax Justice UK, which campaigns for a more progressive and effective tax system. So can you start us off by explaining what's wrong with the UK tax system as it is? Uh, So there are a couple of things that are wrong with our current tax system. First of all, as we've seen with the pandemic, our public services and our social security net are creaking at the seams. And this means we probably in the long run need to be raising more money in taxes to help support and help fund government services. You know, we also get money from borrowing and from money creation to fund services, but tax is obviously a big chunk of how we fund it. So if we want high quality services, we need to raise more taxes over the long run. And then secondly, we're taxing the wrong thing. So our current tax system really focuses on taxing work in particular through the PAYE system, and taxing consumption through VAT. Um, And so what a lot of people, a lot of economists have been pointing out is that we really undertax wealth in this country. And that entrenches inequality and is bad for the system. And so we would like to see more money raised to help fund high quality services. And we'd like to see a shift in the way the tax system is set up. So we're taxing wealth more. And just to kind of like give you some context, uh, in the 1960s, total wealth in the UK was about 300% of GDP. It's now about 700%, but we're still taking the same percentage of GDP in tax from wealth, which is about 3%. So we've seen over the last 50 years, a massive explosion of wealth in this country, which is deeply unequally spread. And yet we're taxing it at the same proportion of GDP. And so that's a big problem. 
Yeah, that doesn't sound right. So you touched on it a little bit there already, but how does all of that then affect people's everyday lives? Is it primarily, as you say, the kind of deterioration of those public services? Are there other reasons why people should care about this? So yeah, it's partly about the services that we all see in our communities, whether that is schools and hospitals or your potholes or how often your bins are collected. It's also the social security net. So we're seeing huge amounts of money being pumped in to support people during the pandemic. And one of the things that this is really highlighting is that the current benefit system is pretty miserly. And that's why the government has had to introduce things like an extra £20 a week to universal credit. So those those are some of the things that we can see. But I do think like persistent inequality is also bad for our society. You know, it's bad if you're seeing a smallish group of wealthy people pull away in terms of the amount of assets they have, in terms of being able to buy houses, in terms of being able to buy houses for their children, when you know, lots of people in this country are really struggling financially, you know, and a lot of that comes down to the choices that government make and tax is part of that. Okay. So I want to spend the bulk of this episode actually talking about, as I kind of said in the intro, attitudes to tax and some of the things that need to change and how people feel about that. But let's just stay with this for a second before we throw over to Anoush for that. So practically speaking, Robert, what would be kind of some of the key features of a properly progressive and effective tax system of the sort that you're campaigning for? So a couple of examples. At the moment, if you have income from wealth, particularly if you have like capital gains, you're taxed at a much, much lower rate than if you have income from work and pay income tax through the PAYE system. And so there's a really good argument in favour of saying whatever type of income you get, you should be taxed at the same rate. We found big public support for that. And there's also quite a lot of support from economists from that idea. IPPR suggested that that could raise something like £90 billion over five years. That's one example. Another example, perhaps more simple, is that we've been engaged as a country in a race to the bottom on our corporate tax rate. So this is the amount of tax that we charge companies on their profits. And it's gone from about 30% under new labor to 19% right now. And so again, that is a conservative-led government saying we're going to prioritize cutting taxes on big business. And what's particularly mad about this policy is if you speak to big business themselves, the big businesses are not saying cut our taxes. You know, there's even quotes from the CBI, the big business lobby saying, oh, you know, we don't need the corporate tax rate to go that low. And so I think those are two kind of very clear examples. Thinking a bit more radically, there's a lot of discussion in the US about an annual wealth tax. And so that's where you charge a certain percentage of people's assets each year, you know, one, two percent, and you can raise money that way. And so that's another idea that's being explored that would be a bit more radical, but I think is definitely something that should be on the cards as we're thinking about how we fix our tax system post-coronavirus. Okay. Thank you so much, Robert, for that really useful intro to where we're at. So as I said, I want to kind of talk about attitudes primarily. So Tax Justice UK completed some work recently on how the public thinks about tax. And Anous, you reported on that, as you know, I'm I'm saying like you don't know, you know, you did it. Can you tell us what this work found out about, let's start with conservative voters. So this report is really interesting and I encourage everyone listening to this podcast to read it because it tells you a lot about where the country is at at the moment in terms of how it views not only tax, but also wealth 
and inequality as well. So some of the most interesting findings, as you mentioned, are among conservative voters. So those who voted conservative in the most recent election. Um, And it found that 64% of Tory voters favour higher taxes on wealth and companies. And that's an increase. So support for higher corporation tax actually increased among conservatives from 61% in March to 74% in June. So you can see during the course of the pandemic, that appetite for raising taxes among new conservative voters has actually risen. And then you also have 67% of conservatives in June supporting the idea of taxing income from wealth at the same rate as income tax. And that's compared with the average voter, which favours that at 61%. So you can see that the proportion of conservative voters who are keen for these kind of things is actually higher than the average voter on some of these levels. Um, Something I found really interesting was that conservative respondents in this study's uh, support for tax on someone's wealth over £750,000 was at 61%. And that's compared with the average, which is 59%. So that's actually higher on that metric as well. And as well as this support for a mansion tax among conservative respondents on homes worth more than £2 million was at 75%. And that's the same proportion of Labour respondents in the same study and higher than the 71% general average. So it looks like there is a significant appetite among conservative voters for taxing companies and wealth at least higher than those things are currently taxed. And it looks like the pandemic has had a bearing on those attitudes as well. So I think those are the most interesting findings in the report, particularly for seeing where the country's voter base is at. Yeah. So you you alluded to it a little bit then, but so how have these attitudes then shifted over the past year? What kind of data are you comparing this to and when was that from? So it's the change between March and June. It looks like the proportion of conservative voters who were keen on this kind of tax reform actually went up over the course of the pandemic. So one of the most interesting ones was that the proportion of conservative voters who were personally prepared to pay more tax to fund public services increased from 41% in March to 46% in June. And that, you know, what was happening then, we were seeing the way that our public services were being relied on to step up for the pandemic response. So yes, there was a shift in attitudes, even over that short period of time. So it looks like the pandemic has sort of shifted or at least sort of focus people's attitudes on the way that the state is being stretched apart at the seams and can do with a little bit more funding. And where does that funding come from? You know, tax. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's bloody fascinating. We're going to dive into it a bit deeper. But Robert, yeah, so just on that report, do you have anything to add about what this research showed specifically on how attitudes have changed towards tax over the past year? Yeah, and I think what Anoush has pointed out is really right. And the really fascinating change is when it comes to conservative voters. Um, When we looked at Labour voters, the change between the beginning of lockdown and June was not so great. And perhaps this speaks to the new coalition of voters that Boris Johnson has managed to cobble together with his promises of getting Brexit done and levelling up. And so I think it'll be fascinating to see how this then interacts with politics in general, but also particularly the politics of the Conservative Party, where there's quite a lot of research to show that Conservative MPs are quite far to the right on economics than their voter base. And so there's going to be some tensions down the road around any ideas and any changes on tax policy. Okay, that makes sense. So 
why? I guess I want to come to you on that, Anoush, first. Again, you know, you spoke to it a little bit around the COVID thing, but why do you think in particular that the last year and these last few months that you've been referencing have caused such a shift in people's attitudes towards tax, other than, you know, above and beyond what you were naming around people realizing that the state is stretched and the money's got to come from somewhere? Mm. Well, yeah, no, I do think those are sort of the bedrock. Um, So that change in the way that public services appear to people sort of on a day to day basis and how they've kind of been degrading before people's eyes over the past 10 years has been a bedrock for the change in attitudes towards taxation. And of course, the pandemic has been a sort of short term acceleration and amplification of that change. But other than that, you can see that the main parties reflect different attitudes among the voters that they're targeting. So if you look at the Conservative manifesto in 2019, um, it actually included a promise to redesign the tax system so that it limits arbitrary tax advantages for the wealthiest in society. So that's quite interesting for a Tory manifesto. It suggests uh, acknowledgement that there is inequality baked into the tax system. And so that not only reflects, but also appeals to the new body of voters who this particular Conservative administration was trying to appeal to. And then, of course, you had Jeremy Corbyn's uh, pledges for wealth taxes in that election as well, which Keir Starmer has sort of carried on in his leadership campaign his sort of first pledge was for economic justice, which meant increasing income tax for the top 5% of earners. So that's that 80 grand salary that caused so much controversy in the run up to the election campaign last year. I think you'll all remember the audience member on Question Time who was totally surprised that he could possibly be in the top 50%, let alone 5% for top earnings. And he (laughs) earned uh, 80 grand. And, And, you know, people made fun of him, but I think it was a really important sort of moment of realisation among the British public and sort of political parties that people do not perceive where they sit on the income scale accurately, which means that they have to be careful when they make pledges based on particular salaries. And there's been some complicated or at least confused messaging from the Labour Party since then. So you mentioned uh, the shadow chancellor sounding negative about tax rises during a recession. And actually, Lisa Nandy also said in the middle of the pandemic, the idea of raising taxes and squeezing people in work, I think she said, is sort of the wrong priority. Then, um, you know, later on, Keir Starmer came out and insisted that it was his priority to hike taxes for the top 5%. So that's him trying to stick to his leadership pledge. So it looks like they're wavering around a bit on the issue. And of course, the Conservatives are also in a bind because their manifesto had a pledge not to raise income tax, VAT or national insurance. But how on earth are they going to pay, not only for their levelling up agenda that they sort of promised and was one of the key pledges of their appeal to voters last year, but also for the cost of the pandemic response as well, if they're not keen on borrowing even further? Mm, Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's really interesting, especially the stuff around the fact that maybe it's not necessarily people changing their minds, but the kind of new raft of Tory voters with potentially more progressive fiscal views being surveyed there. So just following on from that, then a question for you, Robert, kind of, do you think that people's views on tax in general are connected to their views on things like austerity and public services? Because obviously we talk about those things a lot on the podcast, and I'm wondering whether you would kind of draw any lines between those things. Yeah, I definitely would. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about the polling we did, but we also did 11 focus groups around the country, including in a number of the 
red wall seats that went Tory at the last election. And people are really aware that if they want high quality public services, that means in the end, high levels of tax, and people do get that connection. And, you know, we found in our polling that about 50% of people said that they would personally be prepared to pay more tax. And when you speak to people face to face, you find people are, you know, broadly proud of the fact that we've got things like the NHS in the UK, and that we do have these collectively provided services, and people do get that they need to pay tax to pay and to help support those services. And so I think, you know, this is a strong ground to be building a progressive narrative on. And if you look at other public attitudes work, so the British Social Attitudes Survey has been asking people about whether they would like more tax and spend, the same or less. Interestingly, only about 10% of people say they want less tax and spend. But we've seen for the last three or four years a consistent lead for people saying that they want both more spending and more tax. And I think politically, this is the space we're in. And I think you've got some people on the libertarian right who are still arguing for cuts. I think they're delusional, frankly, politically. Um, And you can see that in the type of rhetoric that the conservatives have been using, you know, the end of austerity, austerity is over. We've got this bright, shining new vision. But I think the crunchy conversations within the Conservative Party and more generally is going to be, what does the tax system look like? And how do you increase taxes? And I think it's going to be difficult. I think our public attitude stuff shows that people are prepared to pay more tax, both themselves and also see the wealthy pay more tax in order to get higher quality public services. And I think that's the terrain that we're operating on politically. There are just going to be some big discussions and debates about how it happens in practice. Mm, Crunchy Conservative Conversations is a podcast that I think could rival this one. Uh, I'd be really interested to hear that. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I I speak to Conservatives and they're split. You know, on the one hand, you've got the libertarians, the right wingers, the Thatcherites, small state cutting taxes. Um, Although, interestingly, even the most, you know, the kind of like standard bearer of that wing of the party the Centre for Policy Studies, they put out a paper last week, and even they weren't calling for overall tax cuts. So you've got that wing, and then you've got the other wing, which is a bit more nebulous and is more levelling up, communitarian. And within that wing, there's much more awareness that Conservatives are probably going to have to raise taxes, and they need to think really hard about how to do that in a way that is fair and can help them build on the inroads that they've been making to traditional Labour heartland seats in the Midlands and the North. Mm. Okay. Continuing with the report then, you also have some interesting findings about a couple of things. One of them, people's attitudes towards wealth and wealthy people, and one regarding people's attitudes to tax dodgers or kind of tax avoidance statistics. So yeah, what did you find out about those different things in the research that you did? So first of all, on uh, tax avoidance, People hate it. I mean, the figures that you get on the polling for this are just like almost off the chart. 84% say they want politicians to close loopholes to stop big companies and wealthy people avoiding paying tax. This increased to 91% for Conservative voters. So this is about as close to unanimous view you get in the country. And so, you know, that's helpful because some wealthy people, some big companies dodge their taxes. I think there's a risk for progressives because I think there's a danger that you feed people's sense of fatalism, that things can't change, that if you just focus on tax dodging, you're like, rich people will always dodge their tax, companies will always dodge their tax, we can't change this. 
That's one problem. Another problem is you sometimes get people assuming that you can fix all of our problems in terms of the amount of money we need to raise just by clamping down on tax dodging. And that's not possible. So there are some things that we can be doing, but we just need to be a bit careful. Moving on to wealth, we found, and this is particularly came through the focus groups, really mixed views when you ask people about wealth. So on the one hand, people are really concerned about wealth inequality. We found about 50% of people we polled said billionaires should not exist. And people would often point to people like Paris Hilton as undeserving wealthy. But at the same time, people really see wealth as a key route to achieving security for themselves and their family. You know, if you don't have any money, if you don't have a house, if you don't have that financial security, the idea of accumulating wealth makes a lot of sense. And so when we tested language that was seen as aggressively anti-wealth, it went down like a lead balloon. You know, you'd find maybe a quarter of people that would be up for it, but generally people were pretty positive around wealth and also had quite a strong view that we live in a meritocracy where most wealthy people are there because they've earned it. Now, if you look at the underlying data, that's just simply not true because a lot of wealth is inherited or due from people who are doing rent-seeking behavior or other things. But the public perception is that most wealthy people are there because they deserve it. And so this means that for progressives, we need to be quite careful about how we talk about wealth and how we talk about taxing wealth. You know, as we discussed at the beginning of the podcast, high levels of public support for taxing wealth, big concern about inequality. But if you go in with a hard anti-wealth message, you're going to turn people off. Yeah, I mean, I find that very, very depressing. Um, but also, yeah, it chimes with, you know, what we talk about and hear a lot on this podcast around the fact that the idea of criticizing a kind of few bad apples rather than the entire system seems to be the most effective when it comes to progressive messaging around wealth and taxation, etc. Anusha, I wanted to bring you in on, on, especially on that point around wealth and wealthy people, because I thought you might have some interesting thoughts about how this showed up in the election, you know, when we had all the kind of super rich prepare to leave the UK within minutes if Labour wins kind of chat and bigger threat than Brexit, etc. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I um, I think that this has been a big mistake that progressive movements, but particularly the Labour Party, when up against old Etonian conservative leaders in recent elections have made time and time again, which is this bash the billionaires rhetoric. It just doesn't work. I mean, it, when you go around sort of on the campaign trail, no matter where you are, no matter what constituency you're in, whether it's a Labour marginal or, you know, affluent Lib Dem, you know, it, do, it doesn't matter. People just do not like that rhetoric. And I don't really understand why the Labour Party hasn't got that message yet. Obviously, as you mentioned, we know that people have issues with austerity and the state that their public services are in, and they don't like inequality. And, you know, they find tax avoidance despicable, but they don't like the idea of their aspiration for one day being wealthy being somehow wrong. There was an interesting report at the beginning of this year by researchers at Loughborough and Birmingham and the LSE, which was trying to draw a riches line rather than a poverty line. And they sort of focus group people to ask, when is rich too rich? And people just could not um, get to a consensus on the issue. And ultimately, there was no appetite for defining a threshold above which riches became problematic. And the report concluded that this was because people identify with the wealthy as their imagined or aspirational future selves, 
because they regard the status quo as inevitable. So that ties into something that Robert was saying is sort of it's fated that the rich will get richer and they'll avoid tax and this is just doomed to be the way. And partly because people are simultaneously aware of potential benefits to society as well as harms of wealthy people. So, you know, lots of people in focus groups will talk about how, you know, it's fine to have a lot of wealth because you can give that money to charity or you can start businesses and give people jobs and you can be role models in society, for example. So people are likely to point out the good apples as well as the bad apples. So yes, bashing the rich or suggesting that accumulating wealth is somehow morally wrong is not the way into sort of winning voters' hearts and minds even if the policies that you are trying to propose would effectively try and close that huge wealth gap in society. Okay, so that's something to look out for. Another thing I was kind of wondering about in the framing conversation was especially, Robert, when you were talking earlier about the kind of tax dodgers and how people feel about that, I was wondering if we need to be a bit careful when we're talking about this stuff, not to reinforce the narrative of strivers versus scroungers and the economy as, you know, like a bucket that good people put into and bad people take out of. And essentially the economy needs to be run like a kind of domestic household budget. Is that a threat? Uh, you know, is that something to be worried about or not so much? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point to highlight and work that Neff and others did on how to frame economic issues found that people often use this model, which is dubbed the container model, i.e. the nation is a big pot where money is either contributed or drained. Um, and so, as you say, people are either put in one category of contributors, which is good, or drainers, which is bad. And that reinforces this kind of like strivers versus skivers idea. And I'm not sure if we on the left have got a good enough alternative. I mean, I think you can use metaphors to emphasize how the economy is human made, how we can change it, and how tax and public spending play crucial roles in building things that we collectively need. But I think that idea of both the economy and the country as a big pot that we're contributing to and taking away, and also the idea of the economy as a household that has to balance its books is powerful and simple. And if I was going to say, like, what the next piece of research I'd like to see is how can progressives move on from that story and how can we put forward our own narrative and message that is hopeful and emphasizes the idea of what we do collectively together and how that is stronger than doing things as individuals. But I just don't think we're there yet. And I think, as you've pointed out, Anoush, the idea of just bashing rich people as a go-to default, you know, I don't think it works. And I sat in a focus group the week before the December election in Long Eaton, and we were testing messaging that we had used and the Labour Party had used, and it went down really badly. And this wasn't with, you know, people who are necessarily conservative voters. Um, and so I just think progressives need to be smarter because underlying all of this, people want to see more investment in public services in their communities. They're open for higher taxes. They want to see wealth inequality tackled. And so I think the basics that we're working with is really strong. And you can see the center of gravity on economics politically is shifting to the left. But the left needs to get smarter about how it talks about this stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, it definitely makes sense to be more careful, but it seems certainly like a minefield in in what's been laid out so far. Let's come to today to try and put this in a bit more context. So I know, Robert, you mentioned at the top of the pod that while increasing numbers of people are broadly in favor of higher taxes, we are on the brink of, I think, what's been termed a double dip recession. So for you again, Robert, do you think that being in a recession should impact whether or not we should raise taxes? Should that be something that people are thinking about? So I definitely think, you know, what we want to be doing is pumping money into the economy right now. And there are different ways you can do that. Government spending is the most obvious one. But you could also think about rebalancing the tax system. So if you, for example, tax corporate profits more or tax wealth more and use that money to potentially cut taxes on poorer people who are more likely to spend, actually, that could have a positive impact. So I think we should get away from the idea that we can't talk about any tax changes now, and everything just has to be put off until the future. We can definitely think about making our tax system work better. That would both be fairer, and it could help with the recovery. You know, what we probably don't want right now is broad brush tax rises, because I think that would be potentially damaging. But there are things we could do now Um, that would both make the tax system fairer and potentially give people on lower incomes more money to spend. So Anoush, uh, last month, the Institute for Fiscal Studies said that the government would need to raise taxes by more than 40 billion a year by 2025 to stop public debt from increasing. Do you think that talking about tax is a good way of pushing back against arguments for more austerity? Or does it just reinforce the idea that the government needs to balance the books that we've just been referencing? Well, that's the dilemma because really arguments about debt at the moment are pretty arbitrary and they seem to be a way for the Treasury or the Chancellor at the moment to try and argue that, you know, we can't afford the amount that we're spending on the pandemic response. So we do have to, say, dilute the furlough scheme, which obviously they have to U-turn on. But decisions like that that are obviously not for the public good and seem economically arbitrary in the current context. Um, And so to sort of argue that he has to raise taxes, otherwise, how else is he going to pay for it? I suppose it kind of validates his point. But really, I I would agree with Robert that I don't think that it's right to just rule out the idea of even talking about tax during recession or when the economy is in the state that it's in at the moment. Because like we said before, there is sort of renewed appetite for public services to be better funded. And there's also sort of a cultural wave of warmth towards our public services. You know, who's been there for us during this time? The council, you know, you might have discovered services that you'd never had to access before and and you're just so relieved and grateful that they're there, but you can see how poorly funded these kind of local services have become. Perhaps you're only realising that for the first time. So there's that sort of wave of realisation and positivity towards public services. So that can be harnessed. This could be a good time to talk about rebalancing the tax system. Um, So I don't think it's particularly helpful to just rule out talking about it at all. And from the Labour Party's perspective, it is a pain point for the Chancellor and for this Conservative government in general, because they sort of tied their hands in the manifesto. And they do have that split between the new voters or the 2019 voters who we were talking about before in Tax Justice UK's report, and their sort of more grassroots association members and more traditional Tory MPs. Like there was a rumour 
before the March budget this year that there was going to be a, a mansion tax introduced. And apparently that was sort of quashed by the more traditional side of the party. I don't know if that's true, but you know, you can see that kind of push and pull between what Boris Johnson wants to do more spending, less kind of dry Tory economics and the more traditional side of the party. Um, so so Labour should be able to exploit that weakness as well. Mm. And just to come to you, I guess, on a similar question then, Robert, leading on from what Anoush was just saying, we've talked a lot about what we shouldn't do, but have you got any thoughts yet as to what we should be doing or how we should be framing the argument for higher taxes post-COVID? Definitely. And I think we say COVID has revealed, you know, how reliant we are on the state and some of the problems with it. Public wants to see better quality public services. That probably means higher taxes. We should be asking those with the broadest shoulders, the wealthiest to pay more. We should be protecting those who are on the lowest incomes. This is what the public wants. Uh, This fits in with a conservative levelling up agenda and, you know, with a progressive labour agenda. And I think when it comes to talking about higher taxes on wealth, it's hard, but like avoiding language that implies that being wealthy is somehow inherently bad, but pointing out where wealthy people get these arbitrary advantages, you know, to quote the line from the Tory manifesto. So for example, the fact that income from wealth is taxed at such a low level compared to income from work, people get that, that's a kind of like fairness point of view. I think in the longer term, we on the left need to think hard about how we talk about wealth, because one of the things I think is really important with any public attitudes work like this is this is your starting point. This allows you to understand the territory you're working on, and then you build arguments that are going to convince people from that starting point. So we shouldn't allow what people think now to determine what is politically possible. Our opponents certainly don't do that. Look at some of the stuff that has come from absolutely nowhere to become political reality, because those on the right understand how to frame these issues so much better than we on the left do. So, I mean, I'm cautiously optimistic on where we might go economically. I think the public is with us. We need, as Anoush said, I think she's absolutely right. We need to use the momentum now. Raising taxes is hard. And so we need to think about using the public support we have now to continue to push on this agenda. And frankly, I don't think it's good enough for Labour to say, basically, we're going to sit on the fence until the next election, because that's going to be too late. Definitely. Thanks for that, Robert. That makes sense. Anoush, I want to come back to something that you mentioned earlier, because something Robert just said flagged it again for me about the point that people are not always aware of income distribution inequality. And what Robert was saying there that kind of jumped out for me was around the fact that people obviously are not necessarily against the idea of other people being wealthy, but then still kind of have these reservations when it comes to uh, what kind of tax people should be paying and, and stuff like that. And one of the things that I was wondering was, is there, I guess, a kind of PR job to be done around making people more aware of wealth inequality and of the fact that the reason that they might feel like they're not part of the kind of top 5% or 10% or even 50% is because they look at the super rich who are making the majority of their money from, you know, capital gains and rentier capitalism, et cetera, and compare themselves and think, well, I'm nothing like that. So how can I be clusters in the top percent or whatever? Do we have a job to do of making people realize that? 
Mm, I think that's really interesting because going back to our question time man, that is something that he believed. He said, well, the top 5%, I'm nothing like them. They don't even work. You know, they're so rich, they don't have to work. He had this sort of other level of wealth in his head that his life certainly didn't match up to. And I think we're all guilty of doing it. So in general, we all tend to misplace ourselves on the distribution scale and in terms of inequality. Because I think you mentioned meritocracy before, but the sort of myth of meritocracy is so ingrained in this country that we all sort of have a kernel of belief in it. Um, And we also surround ourselves with people who earn a similar salary. We believe that we're the norm just because of the circles that we move in. Social media is another thing that makes us feel as if we're the baseline and sort of everyone else is different. So it's very, very psychological and it's socially ingrained. And I think it would be very difficult. I think whatever PR campaign that you're suggesting would be a really tough one to sell because this stuff is so, it's so innate, you know. I think what's better is to try and talk positively about what rebalancing the economy and pulling up people who are on lower incomes or don't have wealth, because it should be about income and wealth, not just about salaries. Talk about what benefits that could bring to society rather than focusing on the negatives of the fact that there are some people who are in the super rich who maybe haven't earned their wealth and aren't doing anything positive with it. Because really, people don't want to hear attacks on the wealthy because they don't, in general, sort of identify accumulating wealth as something that's immoral or in general immoral. You know, there may be some people who they point out as using their wealth badly, but it just doesn't seem to really work. And if this stuff is so psychological, then it might be better just to create a more positive narrative about what we can bring to the country and everyone's lives by trying to close that gap, but pull people up rather than bring people down. Yeah, you're right. I mean, when you were saying that, there was like a big part of me that was like, no, no, we need to just tell people, you know, about the difference in income tax versus like capital gains tax and make them aware of that, that a lot of people just get rich doing nothing and then they'll be really angry and take to the streets. And then I was remembering, I was remembering when uh, Trump got asked that question about not paying taxes and then he went, that makes me smart. And then all the news was like, <laughs> look how smart he is. He doesn't pay his taxes. So I think sadly, I think that you're right. Oh gosh. All right. So let's wrap up by talking about politics. So there've been rumors that the cancelled November budget was supposed to include tax rises on the wealthy, businesses and pensions. So Anoush, if Rishi Sunak is considering higher taxes on wealth, isn't he just going to be opposed by MPs in his own party? Hmm. Yeah, I think that could be a really big risk for him. There's already a lot of discontent on the Tory backbenches for all manner of reasons. Most recently, it's uh, disagreements over the severity of lockdown restrictions. The party seems to be quite divided over how much the state has stepped in or the state's role has been sort of bolstered over the course of the pandemic. Um, And I can see any tax rises depending on what they are and exactly how they're proposed. I can see any tax rises like that being the perfect sort of lightning rod for the Tory backbenchers to rebel around. So I think he's going to have a big job on his hands selling those to the party, particularly as he's been the one to sort of be the, maybe the more traditional, dry, conservative voice in the government's pandemic response. So you have Boris Johnson, who seems to be pushing for the sort of more generous approach or the people-pleasing approach, whereas Rishi Sunak's been the one sort of arguing for clawing back some of the state support and trying to eke open the economy again. So he might be seen as sort of betraying 
that strand of Tory economic thought if he starts trying to introduce tax rises. So I think it will be really difficult for him for political reasons, but also for ideological reasons as well. And that's an opportunity for the Labour Party as well, but not just an opportunity to sort of point out the flaws in the policies that he proposes to try and fund the government's spending, but also to propose their own alternatives, because we've seen this problem. I mean, I've heard it in anecdotally in interviews that I've done with people over the course of the pandemic, maybe people on the front line or people whose lives have been affected by the virus itself or by lockdown. Everyone always says something like, well, what would they do? And I know that they've been more forthcoming in their own sort of alternative approach to the pandemic or what their approach would be. But I still think they need to be careful not just to criticise. I think there needs to be, if Rishi Sunak's got a taxation plan that they want to criticise, then I think they have to have an alternative taxation plan of their own. Yeah, not opposition for its own sake and all that. Okay, so Robert, same question. Uh, What do you think of the politics of all this? If the November budget is going to be cancelled, when, if ever, can we expect any of these new tax rises to be announced? And also, the Tory manifesto committed the government to something called the tax triple lock. So just could you briefly explain what that is and if that's still in play? So the tax triple lock is a promise not to raise income tax, national insurance or VAT. Um, And it's been a bedrock of Tory manifestos. I totally agree with Anoush. I think attempts to raise taxes by this government are going to be quite hard because on the one hand, if he tries to raise broad brush taxes, so VAT or income tax, he's going to come up against the manifesto promises. He's also going to come up against the argument and the charge that he is raising taxes on poorer people who've really struggled. And then on the other hand, if he wants to do anything that is more progressive, there's also going to be backbench revolt. So what he might do is just not do anything and just borrow more. And at the moment, the UK government's borrowing costs are basically on the floor, if not negative. Um, And so he could you know, do what US Republicans have done over the last couple of decades, which is spend more, cut taxes, borrow and not actually do anything to increase taxes. So I think that's quite likely. Maybe a bit of a wild card is I suspect if he did that, just borrowed more, he'll have increasingly frantic Treasury officials telling him that he can't do this. But, you know, I think something that we haven't discussed that is really striking is The narrative around public finances now is so different from 2010. You know, the IMF is coming out and saying no need for austerity in rich countries, spend, spend, spend. And most economists would back that idea as well. So I think there's much less pressure now to do anything that might look like he's balancing the books. So, you know, I think there's a good chance that we'll get to the next election and this government won't have raised any taxes at all. But we'll have to see. Yes, we will have to wait and see. And sadly, that is all we've got time for this week. If anything, I've kept you both a bit long, immersed in the tax chat. But yeah, we're going to have to let you go. Robert Palmer, thanks so much for joining me from Tax Justice UK. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? What should they read? So our website is taxjustice.uk and all our reports and data is on there. Fab and Anusha Kellyan, uh, same question. Thanks so much for being with us. If people want to find out more about your work uh, and read your stuff, where can they go? They can go to newstatesman.com or they can pick up a copy of the weekly magazine. Or the New Statesman podcast. I heavily recommend it. It's, uh, it's fab. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> God, I've completely betrayed them. 
Yeah, I know. I was like, you got podcasts. <laughs> Say it, dude. Yeah, no. I, I, in particular, my favorite bits are Stephen Bush's continued Mean Girls quotes. Um, so I've been thinking about how I can try and shoehorn shoehorn more of them into this podcast, but I just don't have his joie de vivre. <laughs> Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, that is it for today's weekly economics podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, lovely listener, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe. <laughs>